Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Welcome back to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. I'm here with Father Jeffrey, and our topic today is the historical development of the Cathisma uh, as a section in our various liturgies. Um, we've hinted at a topic relative to liturgical worship, which is the difference between the historical desert monastic practice of worship and the kind of in-the-city cathedral, more popular, I guess, um, practice of worship, and how those developed separately or, or differently, but then how they came together in certain ways. So I think that this is the episode where we're just going to kind of clarify this concept, this theme, uh, because the cathismas, I think, are a great um, a case study in how desert practice and cathedral practice come together in our services today. So could you just sort of define the historical context of desert versus cathedral practice? Yeah, so it was actually um, liturgical theologian um, Anton Baumstark who, who first kind of saw this uh, development in liturgical history. So he, he called them uh, monastic and cathedral rites or, you know, uh, offices uh, that he detected from about the fourth century, because of course it's then you know through the late third into the fourth century that we have the development of monasticism, um, almost as a response to you know the the popularization of Christianity. First, its legalization, then its imposition as the official uh, religion of the empire, and so forth. So you know you get this move towards the desert in places like Egypt and and Syria and, and so forth, and so he. He kind of takes a hard and close look at what's happening in the fourth century. It's a time where we're beginning to see, you know, liturgy uh, develop, you know, in terms of evidence for it. I mean, there was liturgical practice, of course, you know, from from Pentecost, but uh, you know, it, 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 real evidence and texts start to emerge around the fourth century, and so he he kind of divides that into, you know, two practices and. Um, a, uh, I mean, that's often the way it's still talked about. You've got monastic and cathedral, you know, practice. Later on, uh, Juan Mateus will come along and, and actually divide the monastic into two things that he calls, um, you know, desert monastic and urban monastic, just to kind of give that uh, a little bit more definition. And to make a long story short, eventually, you know, in the Byzantine rite that we have today with our Liturgy of the Hours, as well as the Eucharistic liturgies, something of an amalgam or a, you know, kind of compilation, a, a, a mashup, to use a kind of contemporary term, of those practices finds its way, you know, into our, you know, practice by the time books are being printed and so forth in, in the, you know, late Middle Ages and so forth. So to this day, you can look at our services and find elements of, you know, what these scholars would call monastic practice and what others, you know, what they would call, you know, cathedral rite and so forth. But I'm going to back away from those terms just for a moment and say that they're not 
altogether helpful because when you talk about kind of a cathedral office versus a monastic office, you sort of imagine like a whole thing unto itself, right? As a, as a practice, an external, you know, kind of reality. Whereas it, you know, some others have come along, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, another liturgical scholar called Paul Bradshaw. And he says, you know, I don't really find these terms helpful. I prefer to think of two different modes of prayer, rather than, you know, a full, complete, unto its own right or office or, or so forth. So he prefers the terms city and desert, and that those are kind of more internal approaches to prayer. And to, to say it that way actually allows for what eventually will happen anyway, which is to say they come together, right? That the, you know, you're not Nobody is purely in one mode or the other from an external point of view. And so maybe we can explore them as approaches to prayer or, or, or modes of prayer, uh, of common worship and, and so forth, and, and explore you know, what city versus desert is like, and then you know, see how those undergird or, or kind of are the foundation of our, our services uh, today. Um, but you know, so there's a kind of liturgical history aspect to this, but in the end, it kind of lends itself most uh, of all to being able to think about the different ways, because it's important, you know, if you're presiding at a service or if you're singing at a service or reading at a service to know what kind of mode you're in. And if there is this variety or multiplicity or polyvalence of, of, uh, of, of modes of prayer to, to know which one you're in and to where, know what come, where it comes from and why it's there is, is rather important. So for the next little section here, I thought, how about I express what I've learned about these modes of prayer, the, the city mode, the desert mode, and what, what I've learned about them from you in my, uh, in my degree. Uh, so we'll see how good of a teacher you were. But, uh, this is your Viva Voce examination. Yeah. For... <laughs> uh, but uh, you can fill in the blanks and clarify any, anything. So my impression is that the desert mode of prayer represents more of a um, uh, just a continual stream of prayer that you dip into, that it, it represents more of the, it does not take into account necessarily the themes of the day that it's more meditative. You come and you just read the Psalms from where you left off, right? You don't even... You don't sing a special psalm because it's Tuesday. You just read the psalms that you're supposed to. Um, is am I have do I am I getting that right? Yeah. So I mean, that's with specific reference to the way that this hymn book, the Psalter, you know, is is taken up into these different modes of of prayer, um, and that's certainly the case. We know that you know the those early monks who went off into the desert in Syria or Egypt, um, they took with them um, either you know because they had you know, some scrolls uh, with it written down, or more likely because they had the whole thing memorized, um, they took with them the Psalter and um, they would just, you know, yeah, as you say, kind of have this continual reading. It's also called current reading or reading in course. Um, and they would just as often as possible pray those Psalms and they could do it on their own. But if, you know, over the sand dune was another monk and it happened to be, you know, a certain time of day and they would join together at different times of the day, they would take turns together, you know, reading 
those psalms. And it, as you say, I mean, it wasn't about, okay, it's morning, let's find a psalm that references the morning, or it's evening, let's find a reference to the evening, or, or we're feeling particularly repentant, let's find a repentance-oriented psalm or whatever. No, it's just simply, we're, what's the next? Where do we leave off? You know, And so that's where that you know, practice of, of the, the kind of meditative reading of the Psalter that you know, eventually becomes the, the 20 Cathismata and you know, the division into kind of a structure that gets read regularly throughout the church year which is retained in, to today in our services and particularly focused on in, in monastic practice, uh, that's where it comes from. And it's really interesting to think about, you know, they didn't add a lot to that, you know, in the monastic practice uh, or the, the desert practice, as it were. You know, what they would maybe do is leave space for the meditation and for further prayer. So the references we have at the time are to the Psalms and to prayer, right? But you know, we sort of imagine, you know, a psalm being read by one of the monks, and if there's a small group around them, then waiting. And and in that silence, as we spoke about before, you know, with, you know, the receiving and the immersion into the psalm, and then the the, the further meditation, cogitation, and then transformation that kind of takes place in, in an interior way, that was the prayer. So in other words, you prayed the psalms enough so that you yourself became a psalm, both through your prayer and meditation and the whole way that you lived your life. And if you weren't being transformed, well, then you just had to go and read the psalms more you know, more fully and, and, and more attentively and, and so forth. And so that really was the so-called monastic office, you know. Uh, but it's a mode of prayer of of sort of saying, you know, we're not going to make long lists of litanies to pray for all the, you know, people outside in in, in the world around us and everything. Uh, we're not going to necessarily, you know, read, um, you know, sermons or you know or even other scriptural texts and and so forth. We're not going to have uh, song sung. We're not going to have liturgical movement. Uh, we're not going to have ceremony. We're just going to make this Psalter our life. And you would read it in a, this kind of austere, meditative way until it was so absorbed into you that you lived, you know, that as your whole life. So that's that kind of desert pole you know, as it were, a desert, desert mode uh, of prayer and everything. The same Psalter is being used, you know, in, in the cities, right? In, in the parish churches, in the so-called cathedral. And it, part of the problem with the word cathedral is that you, you sort of think of 12th, 13th century Gothic, you know, constructions or whatever. But what they meant by a cathedral, right, was just simply, in, it's the people's right. It's the, it's the, the right of uh, a way of serving and the mode of prayer that was more common amongst you know, the people in the cities and everything. So do you want to have a go at, at what that uh, looked like? Yeah, so so that would be more focused on perhaps the theme of the day, or instead of maybe reading an entire psalm, you would you would read one verse of the psalm chanted back and forth in refrain. Um, there would be much more singing uh, in terms of group participation, and yeah, you 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 wouldn't necessarily read the entire psalms, and there would be certain psalms for certain days. Um, yeah, that's my impression of that, if you want to take it from there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So, uh, I mean, there are psalms that do talk about waking up in the morning and praying, you know, to God, or even waking up in the middle of the night. And so, uh, you know, or, or coming to the end of the day and reflecting on, on, on what's gone on, or, uh, you know, a prayer that is particular to, uh, you know, praise, or another prayer or psalm that's particular to to repentance and so forth. So the, the distribution thematically of psalms throughout the liturgy of the hour services is something that comes 
out of that, you know, kind of more people's office or, you know, as we're going to say, the more, more the city pole or mode of, of prayer and so forth. And the way that's taken up, I mean, you can imagine these are people who are not able to focus, you know, quite so much as the monks in the desert are on the entirety of the Psalter and memorize it and, and so forth. So, uh, and they may not have, uh, you know, full literacy to be able to kind of just refer to, you know, books and everything. So you, you would tend to have excerpts um, that are sung, that are sung in refrains or antiphonally, you know, as you say. So maybe one person is reading, you know, the fuller psalm and then each after each verse, there's this response, one of the main refrains and so forth. And we referred to that a little bit when we were talking about the opening psalm of, of Vespers, which was chosen, obviously, in place there thematically. Um, and, and that in a more kind of people's rite or cathedral mode and so forth, that that psalm itself is, is shortened and, and, and refrains uh, are... Are, are sung in response and so forth. So to this day, you know, you would find in parish churches and cathedrals that, you know, there is a more sung and uh, ceremonial version of, of that psalm uh, than there would be, uh, you know, in a kind of more monastic mode or, or, or desert practice and everything. But that, all that is to accompany the, the kind of the city mode of, you know, there's more liturgical action, there's more hierarchy, there's more involvement of, you know, the, what the bishop might do, what the presbyter might do, what the deacon might do, what the different roles of, of people within the congregation might be, smaller number of psalms being chosen, you know, for these specific reasons, uh, and it often accompanied with singing, but also with processions and incense and vestments and so forth that you wouldn't find, you know, certainly in the, the sand dunes of, of the desert um, and so forth. And, and also accompanying that obviously is the whole more outward focus, right? If, if the monastic mode is about kind of turning inwards and saying, how do I absorb this whole Psalter in me so that I can live it, kind of more spiritual um, mode, uh, then you could see the, the the, the city office, the people's office, is a kind of more outwardly focused one. It's it, you're interceding for the world. It's more embodied, more more focused on the spread and mission of the church and, and so forth. So presenting it all in that way, rather than saying, okay, there is a monastic office and you can serve it, and there's a a, a cathedral office and you can serve that. Seeing them as modes, I think, helps to see, you know, how. Our services need to accompany, uh, um, encompass both, right? Because you can't have one without the other. I mean, any good, you know, spiritual guide will tell you you can't just live your life in an outward, embodied way. You need to attend to your inner spiritual life. Neither can you do the opposite and just attend to your inner spiritual life without being focused on the love of God for the world and, and kind of moving out. So our liturgy reflects the entirety of the life of the church. And so both modes are, are, are necessary. And so it, it's beautiful actually to then sort of trace, okay, what do those outward forms do through through history and and how eventually... We do have maybe not the perfect amalgamation of them, and there are you know certainly moments of friction and and what we can talk about kind of ongoing tension uh, between the two you know within our lit liturgy of the hours. But there is a balance there, and both are necessary. And it would be wrong, I think, to you know say shorten our services by removing all of one of the two modes from it. Right? We're only going to do you know. The, the city mode in our services, or we're only going to do the, the desert mode, because you would be you know, almost you know, chopping off one leg of, of, of the services, and both are, are needed in order to give us that right balance. 
The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public aspect of our overall project. For those interested, we actively post new episodes on our private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate, discuss, and disagree about open and sometimes controversial theological questions. To get access to these episodes and to join our online community, you can become a patron of the show. We can only continue this work through the generous financial support of our listeners. To become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and select which tier of support you wish. Again, that's patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. And now back to the show. I think that this section of Vespers, the Kathisma section of Vespers, is the perfect spot for us to be talking about this because in this section and the way that it's enacted in services today, uh, you you get all of these nuances going on, right? So if you were to go, uh, let, let's say, for example, when I was um, at school at the University of Toronto with you, that we uh, Merbear, Holy Merbears would serve Vespers, daily Vespers, I think, uh, you know, two to four times a week. And I would be in school, you know, around those days as well. And I would go to Vespers. And during the week, when it comes time for this section of Vespers, during daily Vespers, everyone sits down, somebody picks up the Psalter, opens it up, and just begins reading from the last place we were left off with no consideration of theme or anything, right? You just read the next handful of Psalms. And that, so that would be um, an example of that more desert mode of, of prayer, that you just come, you participate by listening and meditating on these psalms, and you just pick the last one that you left off at. That's right. And, you know, it is a beautiful thing to do that, you know, and, and most people's experience of that is probably not in a parish where you have daily vespers, because uh, even if there is daily vespers, often that section is is left off in parish practice, sadly, you know, but if you've gone ever on a pilgrimage to a monastery and you've had a chance to spend a few days there, you know, how quickly does that become this most seductive part of of the liturgy where you really appreciate just you know sitting down and and paying attention and listening and it 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 works in different ways sometimes the entirety of the psalm with all of that pattern that u shape that we've talked about uh you know it, it impresses upon us other times there's one phrase, you know one line of the psalms that just sort of penetrates our hearts, cuts us to the chase. And, and really focuses our attention. And we move into this kind of interior mode of, of reflection and, and so forth. Sometimes it's just one word, you know, God's mercy or, or God's, you know, uh, glory in the heavens. Something impresses upon us and, and that's where, where we're at. But it, it really gives you that, that opportunity to kind of stop and reflect. And it's different. It really is different doing it as a form of common worship because you could argue, okay, well, in the parish, that's where we sing all the things kind of lustily and, you know, heartily together and, you know, but go home and pray the Psalms in that kind of more meditative way. And sure, you know, that, that is a solution, but it's different when, you know, you're in a quiet, darkened church and everyone's sitting down and paying attention to that one reader. And it takes you back to, you know, 300s in Egypt when the monks were doing that together in the desert. And it comes straight from that. And it's important, you know, part of part of our spiritual life. The other, uh, so if you were to go to Vespers um, 
let's say, at Holy Murbears where we did the daily Vespers. But if you were to go to Vespers on Saturday evening or to basically all Orthodox churches, uh, if you were to go to Vespers on Saturday evening, they when it comes time for the Cathisma, you wouldn't have somebody just go into the middle of the church, pick up the Psalter, and just read, you know, that next section. They would, uh, what's often done is they sing verses of the psalm, verses of the psalms, and the refrain, hallelujah. So it seems to me that that's more of that city mode of prayer being put into that cathisma section, which would traditionally be more of a desert mode of prayer. Am I uh, getting that right as well? Absolutely. And really, it's two different things happening, and it's hard to distinguish, you know, you know, which is the real cause of it. it's probably both. Uh, you know, we've talked before, and again, it is in relation to a psalm, Psalm 103, the opening psalm of Vespers, um, how in, in a kind of, there's a more festal mode and there's a kind of more daily mode to that. So probably, you know, in, in what you've just described, that same daily service where there is into the possibility, at least, and certainly in, in our practice, we we have the the continuous reading of of the Psalms in that Cathisma section. Uh, that same service would have opened with a, a kind of more meditative or solemn reading of the entirety of Psalm one hundred three, right? Whereas, typically on the eves of feasts and. Here we must count every Lord's Day as a feast. It's a mini Pascha, right? So every Saturday evening is festal. Uh, we move into a different mode. And and just like at that same service, certainly in, in more Slavic practice, you sing you know, Psalm 103, an excerpted version, sometimes with refrains and so forth, which which takes on more of that people's office or or city pole of or mode of prayer. Then when you move to the Cathisma section, I mean t- let me tell you what is appointed in the Tipicon, you know, the, the book that says how you're supposed to do the services. It says that it, you know, at that service, the entire Stasis one of Cathisma one is to be, to be, uh, to be read. Um, in fact, all three Stasis are, are to be read with little litanies in between, but I, I don't know that any parish, you know, does that uh, anywhere, maybe in some monasteries. So there are, you know, it's the great litany. Then you read, um, the, uh, the the opening uh, stasis Psalms one to three of of Cathisma one, and then there's a little litany, and then the next stasis, and then a little little litany, and then the the third stasis. Uh, but what is typically happening because it's festal, but also because of that slight resistance and tension, you know, between city and desert practice, you know, in a parish in a cathedral, we like to sing, right, and we're used to singing, and so instead you get excerpts. So typically what happens is the first three Psalms, they pick out, you know, kind of key verses. And there's a kind of traditional way of doing this. The same key verses are chosen by a lot of composers and they're sung with the refrain, Alleluia. Uh, the current setting we're using in our parish right now is is not that, it's the entirety of Psalm 1 um, and with just Alleluia's at, at the end. But that's just, I mean, there's almost a kind of freedom of, of composers to kind of react to the, t- the fundamental text there, but in any case, it's it's a shortened and more sung version of what's actually you know appointed you know to be done there. Uh, maybe there's a parish somewhere that does all eight psalms distributed with little litanies in between, um, but I don't know of any. Um, but but monasteries will often you know do that. And then the same uh, Cathisma, Cathisma 1, the first stasis of it is appointed uh, for, you know, certain ranks of feasts, vigil feasts and so forth. So, uh, you know, we, 
if you're celebrating the a feast of the Theotokos, for example, the that that kathisma is sung. So if your practice is only to attend church on Lord's Day and feasts, you may think, you know, this is a kind of integral part of Vespers that you sing, Blessed is the Man. And often in the books, it's even printed, as you said, as a kind of heading, Blessed is the Man. But actually what is there is one of the kathismata that is appointed for Saturday evenings and for the eves of feasts. And if you go at other times, you'll hear other psalms and maybe, maybe just maybe in some parishes done in that kind of uh, more desert mode of meditative prayer. So we're going to be talking in the next episode, which is liturgical participation. That is the next episode, right? I think so. <laughs> uh, that we'll be talking about um, how kind of we participate and that whole concept of like the sitting and and all that stuff. But for the rest of the episode today, um, I'd like to go back to some of the historical development of, of this stuff. Um, we talked about in the last episode how the books are um, often separate books in our liturgies. So we don't have necessarily just one Bible, and then we flip back and forth between the books that we have the Psalter, we have the Gospel book, we have the Epistle book, right? Uh, would you be able to talk a bit more about that side of it at all? I'm not sure if there's too much more to be said that we didn't cover last episode, but I thought I'd leave it open. Um, do you mean specifically about the that, that being bound as a separate volume or? Um, sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, very much, you know, this has been dictated by, uh, you know, liturgical use and practice, just like the very compilation of the Book of Psalms, you know, in the Hebrew Scriptures, you know, was governed by uh, the practices of worship of of the the Old Testament uh, people of Israel. Um, you know, so you know the way that Scriptures have been passed down has been often, you know, it's been for liturgical purposes and, and so forth. So you can imagine. You know, particularly in a time when, you know, it's very expensive to reproduce books because it was being done by hand, you know, whether they're scrolls or codices or whatever. I mean, to own a book was a tremendous thing indeed. And so, you know, some of our liturgical practice actually reflects just how costly and difficult it was to to get a hold of books. I mean, the the very procession that we have of the gospel book, you know, that we have in, in, the, in the divine liturgy was because it was kept under lock and key in a separate place, right? And it was ceremonially processed into the church and set onto the holy table for, for the service and, and everything. And it, you know, it had to be returned and locked up afterwards. So this, I mean, it would cost a small fortune to own a book like that. So you can imagine, you know, we don't just print the whole Bible or make a copy of the whole Bible and hand out to everybody in the church. So at the canter stand, they would have needed to have you know, the book of, of, of Psalms. And so uh, the the kind of separate collecting of that as a, whether it's in scrolls or, or the codex form, which is the book form that we would recognize and certainly well in advance of printing, you know, that would have been something that would have been available, you know, at the at the canter stand or for the readers to, to take and, and to carry into, into the middle of the church and, and, and so forth. Um, so, you know, very early on then, you know, associate with that would be the kind of organization of that into to how it's being used. So as the liturgy, you know, evolves and you get this kind of more organized distribution, because I mean, this continuous reading or reading in course would have been a, a kind of 
you know, relatively charismatic phenomenon in the beginning, you know, as the spirit leads, right? And where were we last time? Uh, and it, you know, would, as all things got a little bit more organized over time. And so we have very kind of, uh, you know, more rigid, uh, you know, rules about how, how that's read throughout the week now and distributed through the different liturgy of the hour services. So as that emerges, then you're going to put notes in the book, right? And so the, the actual division of of the, the Psalms, uh, you know, takes place and is, is kept together with that at the, at the cantor stand. Interestingly, the other thing that often you'll find in the Psalter is not just the 150 psalms, uh, but also uh, prayers that are associated, you know, with each of the the kathismata. So the, there'll be you know prayers that are, are added into that, and also a collection of the nine uh, biblical canticles or odes um, that are associated with the canon um, at matins. And eventually, we'll get to talking about matins or orthros, and we can talk about those. But th- they're often bound together in the same collection, kind of at the back. Um, so that you have all of that at hand at the choir stand. So it's a very pragmatic and practical consideration, um, and it makes it, you know, easier to to kind of refer to as 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 essentially a living prayer book at, at you know in the course of liturgy. Do we have? Do we know when? The practice of reading these kathismas entered into like uh, into what we might call a recognizable Vesper service today? So, um, you know, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, at one point, the, the distinction that uh, Juan Mateus, a liturgical scholar of the 20th century, made, you know, we, he, he didn't just look at you know, the practice in the cities and the churches or the cathedrals, as, you know, um, Baumstark had talked about versus monastic. He, he actually took monastic and divided it into kind of desert monastic and urban, you know, monastic. And, and really, a lot of influence comes from that urban monastic, uh, you know, practice. So, you know, through church history, there's all kinds of different shocks and revolutions and changes. And, you know, the Byzantine rite, as as quite a few people have pointed out, is probably the most developing and and changing of all of the Christian liturgical rites over time, despite our kind of self-definition as Eastern Orthodox, as, you know, we do it the way the apostles did, you know, um, the the rite has changed, you know, quite substantially over time. And, And often that came through the monasteries that were in the cities. And so a big, big influence is sort of post-iconoclasm around the 8th and 9th centuries. And there's the monastery in Constantinople called uh, the Studion. So you have St. Theodore, the Studite, and so forth. And and from there, there were kind of reforms of the liturgy that, that were you know, monastic practice, you know, coming from places like Jerusalem um, and so forth, you know, they were brought into the city and then had a huge influence on, you know, say what was going on at Hagia Sophia, the, the big cathedral, which is the, the was the center of, of the empire and the center of Orthodox, you know, liturgy and so forth. So I think certainly by 8th and 9th century, you have, you're getting these mashups, these amalgams of, you know, you, there's no pure, you know, cathedral, you know, right as distinguished from, you know, a, a monastic right. They're starting to, to integrate um, each other. But the final, you know, kind of forms of this will come in like the 12th, 13th, 14th century, and certainly around the printing press where, 
you know that that whole trajectory of massive development and change and everything it gets arrested by the fact that you've now got books being printed, and uh, you know that kind of gives it a final form that scrolls and handwritten codices don't. Um, and although you know we mentioned before there was one kind of last gasp of the the cathedral or the, a really kind of sung uh, version of liturgy of the hours like vespers that was uh, that kind of perdured in Thessalonica. So Saint Simeon, you know, in the fifteenth century, he refers to the fact that their version of you know vespers is this earlier kind of cathedral you know practice had a lot more singing, a lot more procession, and so forth. So it hadn't actually absorbed the full impact of desert or monastic practice um, the way already Constantinople had kind of certainly by the time the Latin captivity in the 13th century had ended. Um, and then, of course, it's from Constantinople that, you know, the Slavs and, and, and others uh, got their practice. So it was a pretty universal combination by that point. And, and all of that kind of involves this, you know, cathismata section of, of meditative reading and so forth that, that was a characteristic right back to the fourth century in Egypt. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. For bonus episodes and content, or if you'd simply like to see this show continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. See you next time.